0: Section 18 of Vice Versa by F. Einstey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harleck of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Vice Versa by F. Einstey chapter 16 hard pressed part 2 half an hour went slowly by for mr bultitude in his darkness and solitude the platform gradually filled as he could tell by the tread of feet the voices and the scent of cigars and at last welcome sound he heard the station bell ringing for the up train It ran in the next minute, shaking the cupboards in which Paul crouched till the brushes rattled. There was the usual blind hurry and confusion outside as it stopped. Paul waited impatiently inside. The time passed and still no one came to let him out. He began to grow alarmed. Could Tommy have forgotten him? Had he been sent away by some evil chance at the critical moment? Two or three times his excited fancy heard the fatal whistle sound for departure. Would he be left behind after all? But the next instant the door was noiselessly unlocked. Couldn't do it afore, said honest Tommy. Our governor would have seen me. Now's your time. Here's a empty first-class coach I've kept for ye. In with you now. He hoisted Paul up the high footboard to an empty compartment and shut the door, leaving him to sink down on the luxurious cushions in speechless and measureless content. But Tommy had hardly done so before he reappeared and looked in. I say, he suggested, if I was you, I'd get under the seat before you gets to Dufferton. Other ways, your governor'll be spotting you, I'll lock you in. "'I'll get under now. Someone might see me here,' said Paul, and, too anxious for safety to thank his preserver, he crawled under the low blue cushioned seat, which left just room enough for him to lie there in a very cramped and uncomfortable position. Still, he need not stay there after the train had once started, except for five minutes or so at Dufferton.' Unfortunately, he had not been long under the seat before he heard two loud, imperious voices just outside the carriage door. Porter, guard, hey, somebody, open this door, will you? It's locked. This way, sir, he heard Tommy's voice say outside. Plenty of room higher up. I don't want to go higher up. I'll go here. Just open it at once, I tell you. The door was opened reluctantly, and two middle-aged men came in. Always take the middle carriage of a train, said the first. Safest in any accident, you know. Never heard of a middle carriage of a train getting smashed up to speak of. The other sat heavily down just over Paul with an uncomfortable grunt, and the train started. "'Paul feeling naturally annoyed by this intrusion "'as it compelled him to remain in seclusion "'for the whole of the journey. "'Still,' he thought, "'it is lucky that I had time to get under here "'before they came in. "'It would have seemed odd if I had done it afterwards.' "'And he resigned himself to listen to the conversation "'which followed. "'What was it we were talking about just now?' "'began the first. "'Let me see. Ah!' i remember yes it was a very painful thing very indeed i assure you there is a certain peculiar and uncomfortable suspicion that attacks most of us at times which cannot fairly be set down wholly to self-consciousness or an exaggerated idea of our own importance i mean the suspicion that a partly heard conversation must have ourselves for its subject More often than not, of course, it proves utterly unfounded. But once, in a way, like most presentiments, it finds itself unpleasantly fulfilled. Mr. Bultitude, though he failed to recognize either of the voices, was somehow persuaded that the conversation had something to do with himself, and listened with eager attention. Yes, the speaker continued. He was never, according to what I hear, a man of any extraordinary capacity, but he was always spoken of as a man of standing in the city, doing his safe business, not a risky one, and so on. You know, so of course his manner, when I called, shocked me all the more. Ah, oh, said the other, was he violent or insulting then? No, no, I can only describe his conduct as eccentric. "'what one might call reprehensibly eccentric and extravagant. "'I didn't call exactly in the way of business "'but about a poor young fellow in my house "'who is, I fear, rather far gone in consumption "'and knowing he was a life governor, you know. "'I thought he might give me a letter for the hospital. "'Well, when I got up to Mincing Lane, "'Pulse started. "'It was as he feared. "'Then they were speaking of him.' When I got there, I sent in my card with a message that, if he was engaged or anything, I would take the liberty of calling at his private house, and so on. But they said he would see me. The clerk who showed me in said, You'll find him a good deal changed, if you knew him, sir. We're very uneasy about him here, which prepared me for something out of the common. Well, I went into a sort of inner room, and there he was, in his shirt sleeves busy over some abomination he was cooking at the stove with the office boy helping him i never was so taken aback in my life i said something about calling another time but bultitude paul groaned the blow had fallen well it was better to be prepared and know the worst bultitude says just like a great awkward schoolboy you know What's your name? How'd you do? Have some hard-bake. It's just done. Fancy finding a man in his position, cooking toffee in the middle of the day and offering it to a perfect stranger. Softening of the brain must be, said the other. I fear so. Well, he asked what I wanted and I told him, and he actually said he never did any business now except sign his name where his clerks told him. He worked hard all his life, he said, and he was tired of it. Business was, I understood him to say, all rot. Then he wouldn't promise me votes or give me a letter or anything without consulting his head clerk. He seemed to know nothing whatever about it himself. And when that was over, he asked me a quantity of frivolous questions which appeared to have a sort of a catch in them as far as I could gather, and he was exceedingly angry when I wouldn't humour him. What kind of questions? Well, really, I hardly know. I believe he wanted to know whether I would rather be a bigger fool than I looked, or looked a bigger fool than I was. And he pressed me quite earnestly to repeat some foolishness after him about being a gold key when he said he was a gold lock. I was very glad to get away from him. It was so distressing. They tell me he has begun to speculate too lately, said the other. You see his name about in some very queer things. It's a pitiful affair altogether. Paul writhed under his seat with shame. How could he, even if he succeeded in ousting Dick and getting back his old self, how could he ever hold up his head again after this? Why, Dick must be mad. Even a schoolboy would have had more caution when so much depended on it. But none would suspect the real cause of the change. These horrible tales were no doubt being circulated everywhere. The conversation fell back into a less personal channel again after this. They talked of risks of someone who had only been writing a year and was doing 7,000 a week. Of losses they had been on and of the uselessness of writing five hundred on everything and while at this point the train slackened and stopped they had reached dufferton there was an opening of doors all along the train and sounds of some inquiry and answers at each the voices became audible at length and as he expected paul found that the doctor not having discovered him on the platform was making a systematic search of the train evidently believing that he had managed to slip in somewhere unobserved it was a horrible moment when the door of his compartment was flung open and a stream of ice-cold air rushed under the blue cloth which fortunately for paul hung down almost to the floor Someone held a lantern up outside, and by its rays Paul saw from behind the hanging the upper half of Dr. Grimstone appear, very pale and polite, at the doorway. He remained there for some moments without speaking, carefully examining every corner of the compartment. The two men on the seat drew their wraps about them and shivered, until at length one said rather testily, "'Get in, sir.' "'Kindly get in if you are coming on, please. "'This draft is most unpleasant.' "'I do not propose to travel by this train, sir,' said the doctor, "'but as a person entrusted with the care of youth, "'permit me to inquire whether you have seen "'or it may be assisted to conceal "'a small boy of intelligent appearance.' "'Why should we conceal small boys "'of intelligent appearance about us, pray?' demanded the man who had described his visit to mensing lane and may we ask you to shut that door and make any communications you wish to make through the window or else come in and sit down that's not an answer to my question sir retorted the doctor i notice you carefully decline to say whether you have seen a boy I consider your manner suspicious, sir, and I shall insist on searching this carriage through and through till I find that boy. Mr. Bultitude rolled himself up close against the partition at these awful words. Guard! Guard! shouted the first gentleman. Come here. Here's a violent person who will search this carriage for something he has lost. I won't be inconvenienced in this way without any reason whatever.' He says we're hiding a boy in here. Guard, said the doctor, quite as angrily. I insist upon looking under these seats before you start the train. I've looked through every other carriage and he must be in here. Gentlemen, let me pass. I'll get him if I have to travel in this compartment to town with you. For peace and quietness sake. Gentlemen, said the guard, let him look around just to ease his mind. "'Lend me your stick a minute, sir, please. "'I'll turn him out if he's anywhere about this here compartment.' And with this he pulled Dr. Grimstone down from the footboard and mounted it himself, after which he began to rummage about under the seats with the doctor's heavy stick. Every lunge found out some tender part in Mr. Bultitude's person and caused them exquisite torture, "'but he clenched his teeth hard to prevent a sound "'while he thought each fresh dig must betray his whereabouts. "'There,' said the guard at last, "'there really ain't no one there. "'Sir, you see, I've felt everywhere, and... "'Hello, I certainly did feel something just then, gentlemen,' "'he added, in an undertone, "'after a lunge which took all the breath out of Paul's body. "'All was lost now.' "'You touch that again with that confounded stick if you dare,' said one of the passengers. "'That's a parcel of mine. I won't have you poking holes through it in that way. "'Don't tell that lunatic behind you. "'He'll be wanting to open it to see if his boy's inside. "'Now perhaps you'll let us alone.' "'Well, sir,' said the guard at last to the doctor as he withdrew, "'he ain't in there. There's nothing under any of the seats.' "'Your boy will be coming on the next train, most likely, the 840. "'We're all behind, right?' "'Good night, sir,' said the first passenger "'as he leaned out of the window to the baffled schoolmaster on the platform. "'You've put us all to this inconvenience for nothing "'and in the most offensive way, too. "'I hope you won't find your boy till you're in a better temper for his sake.' if i had you out on this platform sir shouted the angry doctor i'd horsewhip you for that insult i believe the boy's there and you know it I." but the train swept off and to paul's joy and thankfulness soon left the doctor gesticulating and threatening miles behind it what a violent fellow for a schoolmaster eh said one of paul's companions when they were fairly off again i wasn't going to have him turning the cushions inside out here we shouldn't have settled down again before we got in no and if the guard hasn't as it is injured the indian shawl in my parcel i shall be why bless my soul that parcel's not under the seat after all it's up in the rack i remember putting it there now the guard must have fancied he felt something, and yet... Look here, Goldiecut, just feel under here with your feet. It certainly does seem as if something soft was... Eh? Mr. Goldicut, accordingly, explored Paul's ribs with his boots for some moments, which was very painful. Upon my word, he said at last, it really does seem very like it. It's not hard enough for a bag or a hat box. It yields distinctly when you kick it. Can you fetch it out with your umbrella, do you think? Shall we tell the guard at the next? Lord, it's coming out of its own accord. It's a dog. No, my stars. It's the boy after all. For Paul, alarmed at the suggestion about the guard, once more felt inclined to risk the worst and reveal himself. Begrimed grimed with coal, smeared with whitewash, and covered with dust and flue, he crawled slowly out and gazed imploringly up at his fellow passengers. After the first shock of surprise, they lay back in their seats and laughed till they cried. "'Why, you young rascal,' they said, when they recovered breath, "'you don't mean to say you've been under there the whole time?' "'I have indeed,' said Paul. I I didn't like to come out before. And are you the boy all this fuss was about? Yes. And we kept the schoolmaster off without knowing it. Why, this is splendid. Capital. You're something like a boy, you little dog, you. This is the best joke I've heard for many a day. I hope, said Paul, I haven't inconvenienced you. I could not help it, really. Inconvenience us? "'Gad, your schoolmaster came very near inconveniencing us and you too. "'But there he won't trouble any of us now. "'To think of our swearing by all our gods there was no boy in here "'and vowing that he shouldn't come in "'while you were lying down there under the seat all the time. "'Why, it's lovely. The boy's got pluck and manners too. "'Shake hands, young gentlemen. You owe us no apologies.' I haven't had such a laugh for many a day. "'Then you, you won't give me up?' faltered poor Paul. "'Well,' said the one who was called Goldicutt "'and who was the jovial old gentleman with a pink face and white whiskers, "'we're not exactly going to take the trouble of getting out at the next station "'and bringing you back to Dufferton, "'just to oblige that hot-tempered master of yours, you know.' He hasn't been so particularly civil as to deserve that. "'But if he were to telegraph and get someone to stop me at St. Pancras,' said Paul nervously. "'Ah, he might do that, to be sure. Sharp boy, this. Well, as we've gone so far, I suppose we must go through with the business now and smuggle the young scamp past the detectives, eh, Travers?' The younger man addressed assented readily enough for the doctor had been so unfortunate as to prejudice them both from the first by his unjustifiable suspicions, and it is to be feared that they had no scruples in helping to outwit him. Then they noticed the pitiful state Mr. Bultitude was in, and he had to give them a fair account of his escape and subsequent adventures at which even their sympathy could not restrain delighted shouts of laughter, though Paul himself saw little enough in it at all to laugh at. They asked his name, which he thought more prudent for various reasons, to give as Jones and other details, which I am afraid he invented as he went on, and altogether they reached Kentish town in a state of high satisfaction with themselves and their protégé. At Kentish Town there was one more danger to be encountered, for with the ticket collector there appeared one of the station inspectors. Beg pardon, gentlemen, said the latter, peering curiously in, but does that young gent in the corner happen to belong to either of you? The white-whiskered gentleman seemed a little flustered at this downright inquiry, but the other was more equal to the occasion. "'Did you hear that, Johnny, my boy?' he said to Paul, whom they had managed during the journey to brush and scrape into something approaching respectability. "'They want to know if you belong to me. I suppose you'll allow a son to belong to his father to a certain extent, eh?' he asked the inspector. The man apologized for what he conceived to be a mistake." "'We've orders to look out for a young gent about the size of yours, sir,' he explained. "'No offence meant, I'm sure,' and he went away satisfied. A few minutes more and the train rolled into the terminus under the same wide arch beneath which Paul had stood helpless and bewildered a week ago. "'Now my advice to you, young man,' said Mr. Goldiecut as he put paul into a cab and pressed a half-sovereign into his unwilling hand is to go straight home to papa and tell him all about it i daresay he won't be very hard on you here's my card refer him to me if you like good night my boy good night and good luck to you cad the best joke i've had for years and the cab rolled away leaving them standing chuckling on the platform and, as Paul found himself plunging once more into the welcome roar and rattle of London streets, he forgot the difficulties and dangers that might yet lie before him in the thought that at last he was beyond the frontier, and, for the first time since he had slipped through the playground gate, he breathed freely. End of Section 18